Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive approaches to the history of popular music. This is the first of several episodes examining the blues. In this episode, I try to get at the rather elusive definition of the blues and discuss its emergence into the mainstream in sheet music and recordings. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. the blues? It seems like a stupid question at first, doesn't it? I mean, we all know what the blues is. The blues is a central and vital part of the musical expression of the United States, developing as so many cultural innovations developed in the U.S. out of the truly abominable injustices of slavery, an expression of black suffering and dissatisfaction and longing, transmuted into a musical form of great immediacy that directly contributed to most of the genres we consider preeminent in the history of popular music, ragtime, jazz, Tim Pan Alley, the American Songbook, Boogie Woogie, R&B, modern gospel, honky-tonk country music, bluegrass, rock and roll of the 50s, and rock music thereafter. But that realization already points to a difficulty. Those differing genres of music, they draw on various aspects of the blues. What gospel draws from the blues is not the same as what the 60s rock gets from it. So, like any highly developed cultural form, the blues isn't one thing, it's many things. But that realization points to yet another difficulty. We tend to think of the blues, we romanticize it or de-romanticize it, depending on your point of view, as a relatively primitive or at least simple form of musical expression. Now, I slipped an allusion to this notion in on you earlier. Did you catch it? I said that the blues was a musical form of great immediacy. Okay, that sounds good, but what does it mean? The term immediacy, of course, means that there's nothing between you or your understanding and the object of your concern, nothing that filters or sifts your grasp of that object. In simpler terms, and in this context, to say that the blues involves an immediacy of expression means that you need not be equipped with any particular cultural understanding in order to comprehend what is going on in the blues. Maybe even the word comprehend is wrong here. What we really mean by immediacy in this context is that you feel what the blues expresses without the need for any presuppositions or cultural knowledge or familiarity with this kind of music. After all, one of the most famous, if laconic, definitions of the genre is simply to claim that, quote, the blues is a feeling. Now, that definition has the advantage of shutting down conversation. If shutting down conversation is what you're looking to do, it implies that you either get that feeling or you don't, and there's no use talking about it. But I think the notion that the blues is a feeling also does a disservice to the blues. The blues isn't just one feeling, any more than it is simply one musical characteristic or form. It encompasses many feelings. There are, of course, sad blues, but there are also defiant blues, angry blues, joyful blues, exuberant, contemplative, sensual, licentious blues, comedic blues, and on and on and on. The blues is far more profound than the representation of a single stereotypically mournful emotion. Our simplest and most familiar musical definition of the blues is also too simplistic. 
It maintains that what we're dealing with here is a 12-bar form consisting of three four-bar phrases. The melody of those phrases are often referred to, the, the melody of those phrases is often referred to as AAB, meaning that the first phrase is repeated, perhaps with some slight variation, and then there's a contrasting line. Now let's take St. Louis blues, which isn't maybe the most prototypical blues in some ways, but it'll, it's one that we're going to hear again in a bit, and it is a 12-bar blues, at least the main verse of it is, and so it gives us a sense of, of what's going on here, right? Um, we'll discuss this uh, piece in a bit more detail in a bit, but uh, the opening verse is, I hate to see that evening sun go down. I hate to see that evening sun go down because my baby she done left this town, right? So it's, I hate to see the evening sun go down. I hate to see the evening sun go down. Because my baby, she done left this town. So you'll notice the first two lines are not identical, but they're clearly related, right? The and then the next one. Right, they both end the same exact way. Now, the third line also has a little bit of a relationship to the rest, because that opening, that opening was a, a tonic uh, arpeggio, right? From the third to the fifth the tonic, and the, the dominant chord does the same thing. Right? So there are all sorts of relationships we might trace out here that are beyond just the, the AAB that we're used to we're used to talking about. So those three phrases, they're often, but not nearly always, set over the familiar 12-bar harmonic structure. The first phrase basically features or prolongs the tonic chord. The second phrase moves from four back to one. And the third phrase moves from five back to one. Sometimes, but not nearly always, with a four chord in between. So the form ends then with a with a turnaround, a way of getting back. There's your most stereotypical one, uh, and that gets us back to the five chord, so that we start the whole thing over again, right? This is the most familiar blues progression, and many people unknowingly or knowingly reduce all blues to variations on that progression. But as we'll see, I think that's a mistake. Now, I left some very important things out of that description. Each of those chords are usually not just triads. They're major chords with a minor seventh, or what is sometimes called the dominant seventh chord. Now, we don't need to get too technical here to realize something pretty fascinating about the blues. Actually, several fascinating things. First, in a lot of Western music, especially so-called classical music, but also various genres of popular music, the dominant seventh chord um, is, is called that for a specific reason, because its job is to resolve to a chord down a fifth from it, right? So it serves as a dominant, uh, that we call the five chord usually a dominant, so in this case uh, it's resolving. So, so in fact it resolves in a specific way because the dominant seventh gives it a dissonance, notice this dissonance, right? Um, and that dissonance then resolves in a pretty predictable manner, right? We move from dissonance to consonants. 
in the following chord, and that's why it is most typical to find it to find the dominant seventh sound in classical music on the five chord or on a chord that is temporarily acting like the five chord because it resolves, it's pushing somewhere. So a dominant chord is an indexical harmony. That sounds complicated, but it's not. What finger do you use to point? Most of us, the index finger. That's why it's called that. It comes from the Latin. It basically means to point at something, to indicate, indicare, right? Index, indicare, to indicate something. So the dominant chord indicates its point of resolution. When you hear this chord in, in classical music, you're expecting a resolution here, right? If we have something like... for that resolution, right? That's what it does. It indicates. It's an indexical harmony. So the dissonance of the dominant chord contributes to that pointing element. It increases the tension so that we feel the need for resolution if we're attuned to this musical language. The dominant seventh sound, which is a sonority, contributes to the function of the dominant, which is to resolve down a fifth, to resolve to the tonic chord. So notice that. Sonority and function are closely wedded, but the blues does something different. It has the so-called dominant seventh sound, yeah, on the five, but also on the four, and on, most surprisingly, the tonic harmony, right? That's why I prefer not to even call it a dominant seventh in this context. It's a major chord with a minor seventh or a major minor seventh chord, if you wish. That's because in the blues, sonority is divorced from function. I'm going to say that again because it's very important. Sonority is divorced from function. If I were to play for you this chord and you were told, oh, this is a classical style piece, you would expect it to then resolve to this chord. But if I say, here's this chord and I tell you it's a blues, it could be anything, really. It could be it could be the one, it could be the four, it could be the five. And once we get into deeper blues harmony, it could be a flat six, a flat two, several other possibilities. So this is the first opportunity that blues harmony grants us. It's less schematic than most Western harmony because it separates sonority from function. That makes it surprisingly flexible and far more interesting than we realize if we honestly think, as many of my guitar students used to believe, that the blues is just one, four, and five, man. No big deal. It is a big deal. There's a lot going on here that's much more interesting than just the one, four, and five. Now, secondly, that four chord with the minor seventh, that means that that seventh is the flat third of the overall key. Now, don't worry if that doesn't make sense to you, if that's not something you're familiar with. What it amounts to is this. The characteristic sound of the blues derives from what is called the blue notes. Perhaps the most characteristic blue note in a major key is the flat third. Right? So to a classical listener, the flat third is indicative of the minor key. Not the major. That has the major third. But the blues uses both the minor and major third above a tonic in a major key. And that results in various familiar patterns like... Right? So you hear that over and over again. The source of this seems to have derived from African-American musical genres during slavery, so field hollers and ring shouts and early spirituals, where the third that they sang was somewhere in between what we generally think of as the major and minor third. So that four 
chord with the minor seventh builds on the blue note, it builds the blue note rather right into the harmonic structure and it becomes a very popular sound for Tim Pan Alley music, Gershwin and all those guys, and for early jazz, much of which is derived from the blues. In, in fact, the recording that most people not me, by the way, but most people consider the first true example of, a, of, of jazz on a record is Livery Stable Blues, recorded by the original Dixieland Jazz Band in 1917. There are other contenders, but this is the one that's often cited. So the blues was part of jazz from the very beginning, just as there are traces of the blues and appearances of blue notes in ragtime music at the end of the 19th century, before there were any sheet musics, a sheet music available, there was any sheet music available for the blues or, or recordings of the blues. Okay, so there it is, right? We have the AAB lyric, we have the melodic structure, we have the 12-bar the harmonic structure, the use of blue notes, and we might further uh, suggest that each phrase often includes a bit of a call and response. Remember when I was doing it a second ago and I sang, uh, I hate to see the evening sun go down, and then I filled in with, or whatever it was I did. Um, so that there's call and response texture between the voice and the accompaniment. Now, sure, that's what we teach people when we teach them about the blues, at least at first. But that is only the very surface of the topic, especially when we're talking about the beginning of the blues tradition. There are plenty of blues songs that have other chord progressions, other lyric types, and other phrase structures. Let's hear an example. This is one of my favorites. This is Prove It On Me Blues by Gertrude Ma Rain. Shut up the women like any other guy Don't say I do it 
it. Ain't nobody called me. You sure got to prove it on me. You sure got to prove it on me. claim that this is not really a blues, even though it is called a blues, and that's because the notion that the blues is just the familiar 12-bar progression is so prevalent. Those critics would claim that the prove-it-on-me blues is closer to ragtime harmony than blues harmony. But who are you going to believe? Some Johnny and Jane come latelys who are discussing the blues in an ahistorical and reductionist manner? Or are you going to believe Gertrude Ma Rainey, known in her own time as the mother of the blues? Is the quibbling that this is a blues artist singing a blues-tinged song full of blue notes uh, and called a blues, but really with ragtime harmony and structure, is it really worth it? Should we accept, maybe? That the blues is not so easily defined as we take it to be? Let's sum up a bit. I'm suggesting that the blues involves a divorce between sonority and function. That, that's one of its truly revolutionary elements and often overlooked. While it retains the importance of both sonority and function, not an easy trick to pull off. I'm suggesting that the blues has a flexible approach to key identity through the blue notes that give it a specific sound and a great deal of improvisational liberty. Once you know the blues well, many opportunities for playing through those harmonies will occur to you. You learn them. I'm also suggesting that it is wrong to do what so many of us often do, which is to reduce the blues to a familiar progression. Rather, the blues, like jazz, actually consists of a series of voice-leading paradigms or if you like, contrapuntal cliches, ways in which voices move against each other to get from one harmony to the next. The blues musicians learn these cliches and they employ them and they develop them. Some of those cliches fill out the basic 12-part progression. Some of them, like those in Prove It All Me, don't. They do something else. Ultimately, I would suggest that the blues is an absorptive genre in that it absorbs elements from other genres and brings them together within the gravitational force of its own musical language. And like all musical languages, the blues language involves ways of moving through tonal space, characteristic ways of navigating among various sonic landmarks. So the blues may or may not be a feeling in the sense of an emotion, but perhaps a better way of understanding it is as a certain manner of feeling one's way through tonal space, a different tonal space than classical music, and a different manner of moving. Not totally unrelated, but different enough to be another language that makes other kinds of demands on both listeners and performers and affords other kinds of opportunities. Now, We'll go into greater detail about the origins of the blues in an upcoming episode. That history goes back to the late 19th century, and much of it is shrouded in mystery. What I want to trace in the remainder of this episode is the emergence of the blues into the cultural consciousness of a national public. 
That is, I want to trace the emergence of the blues into the written and recorded history of music. Its first appearances, therefore, in sheet music and on recordings. Blues seem to have come to the attention of professional musicians right around the turn of the 20th century. Both Gertrude Ma Rainey and Jelly Roll Morton claim to have first heard it in street, by street performers, performed by street performers, around 1902. W.C. Handy claims to have first heard it in 1903, and his story, I think, is pretty interesting. He was already touring with minstrel groups uh, by 1892. And he had several teaching gigs and so on, but he found he made more money on tour. So he's on tour, and while he's waiting for a train in Tootweiler, Mississippi in 1903, he has an experience that he often related, and this is from his autobiography. He says, quote, A lean, loose-jointed Negro had commenced plunking a guitar beside me while I slept. As he played, he pressed a knife on the strings of the guitar in a manner popularized by Hawaiian guitarists who used steel bars. The singer repeated the line three times, accompanying himself on the guitar with the weirdest music I ever heard. So notice, he's emphasizing the weirdness of it, the strangeness of it, the self-accompanied aspect, the slide guitar, which is very typical of early country blues, not the kind of blues we're talking about today, but we'll talk about country blues in, in the next episode. Um, and he's also he also mentions that there's a line three times. Here it's not A-A-B, presumably it's A-A-A, it's just the th same line three times. Uh, in 1905, while he's playing at a in a dance band, he's asked by the people that he's playing for if, if they could play some of, quote, our native music, by which he, uh, they, of course, meant black music, um, as opposed to some of the march music and the, and the dance numbers he was playing. And then he's asked if a local black band could play a few numbers. Now, anyone of, of you who's ever done a gig, you know this is a pretty uncomfortable moment. Right, where someone else, like I used to play in a wedding band, and there was always someone's cousin that wanted to play my guitar for a little bit, right? Play a few numbers. Um, and everyone acts like it's a huge favor to you, but of course, you know it's not. At any rate, uh, they, they let them let this group play. And he writes this in his autobiography They struck up one of those over and over strains that seemed to have no beginning and certainly no ending at all. The strumming attained a disturbing monotony, but on and on it went, and a kind of st the kind of stuff associated with sugar cane rows and levee camps thump, thump, thump went their feet on the floor. It was not really annoying or unpleasant, perhaps haunting is the better word. Right? So notice he doesn't think very highly of this. It's an over and over thing. It's not very creative as far as he's concerned. And the rhythm he's describing is just thump, thump, thump. I'm not trying to suggest that maybe even he's not trying to suggest that march rhythms are all that terribly exciting. But he's clearly portraying this as being more folk oriented, more, more um, basic. Um, but yet it's somehow haunting. It's not exactly annoying, although he feels the pressure to use those words to tell you it's not annoying or unpleasant. Um, and yet, there's something, there's something strange and removed about it, right? And this is how, as we'll talk about more next time, a lot of people think about the early blues as this kind of strange, other kind of performance practice that's going on, that's not in the mainstream, that's not being recorded, that's not being notated yet. So when does it get notated? The earliest publication I know of that includes a recognizable blues, indeed in the 12-bar form, is Anthony Maggio's I Got the Blues from 1908. And this is sheet music that advertises itself as a, quote, up-to-date rag and a characteristic ragtime two-step, quote, respectfully dedicated to those who have the blues. So notice, not only is this a blues, but it's for those who have the blues. So it's connecting that 
that feeling of the blues, I suppose. And remember, we said it's not one feeling, but obviously when we say, are you feeling blue, we mean something pretty specific that, that the music sometimes conveys, but not always. Now, this is indeed a rag. It's just that the first strain of that rag, like, like many rags, it's based on, on march approaches. And so you have all these self-contained uh, sections um, four of them, I believe, in this, this particular one, A, B, C, and D. And the A section is simply a 12-bar blues. It's not a particularly inspired one, not a particularly interesting one. But that's 1908. That's the first one. And it's clearly coming out of the ragtime tradition. And those of you who are familiar with ragtime music know that blue notes are all over it, right? So maybe this isn't so surprising. 1912, though, that was the big year. Uh, in that year, uh, a song that was supposedly written in 1911 was published by Lassie's White, which is now known as Lassie's Blues when he first uh, copyrighted, uh, had it copyrighted. Uh, he called it the Negro Blues. Uh, that same year, 1912, Dallas Blues by Hart Wand was released. Baby Seals released Baby Seals Blues, and this is coming out of a, um, a uh, one of these so-called coon duos where it was two black performers doing sort of minstrel stereotypes and so that's part of the context in which that one uh, emerges and it was also that year that W.C. Handy published his Memphis Blues which he claims to have written in 1909 as a campaign song for the for the political boss the mayor of Memphis boss Crump uh, and you know, it includes a, a 12-bar blues. So again, most of these pieces aren't straightforward blues. They're ragtime pieces that are um, incorporating blues. And But we've already said that the distinction between ragtime and blues isn't so straightforward. And I want us to maintain that idea. Because when we come back to the, the earlier tradition of the blues, where it emerges, a lot of the people that are playing it are also playing folk rags and other things. So this is an absorptive genre. It brings in other genres. Now let's listen to one of the most famous pieces by W.C. Handy as far as the blues is concerned. This is St. Louis Blues of 1914, right? Um, and it, this is a, an interesting piece for a number of reasons, as we'll see. Let's, let's give it a listen.
So notice that parts of that tune are straightforward 12-bar blues, and I already kind of went through the verse of it earlier, so you had a sense of how that worked. But you also notice there's a 16-bar part of it, and, and the introduction, that use habanera rhythms, right? Uh, Handy himself claimed, uh, as he puts it in, in his autobiography, the one step and other dances have been done to the tempo of Memphis blues. When St. Louis blues was written, uh, the tango was in vogue. So I tricked the dancers by arranging a tango introduction, then abruptly breaking into a lowdown blues. My eyes swept the floor anxiously, then, saw, then suddenly I saw a lightning strike. The dancers seemed electrified. Something within them suddenly came to life. An instinct that wanted so much to live, to fling its arms, uh, to spread joy, took them by the heels. So notice that he's, he's in a way, he's playing with the audience, right? He's trying to, um, to engage them in a bit of deception. They think that they're going to perform one um, kind of ballroom dance, the tango, which of course is itself a very sensual dance, um, but a, more or less a formalized ballroom dance, and then they're given this, this blues tune, and this idea of something coming to life from that, right? But there's this element here where he doesn't, I, I don't want to say he doesn't entirely trust the blues, but I, maybe I do want to say that, that he, he in a way feels like the blues isn't substantial enough uh, to carry on as a, as a tune in its own right. It has to be um, prettied up with a little bit of, of, of a tango element and a habanera element. Now, this was performed quite early on instrumentally, not too long after he published it on, on recordings, but the singing version wasn't recorded until Al Bernard did it for Victor Records on March 7th of 1919, uh, then again on November 1st of that year for, for Edison Records. Right? He later recorded in 1921 with the Dixieland Jazz Band, who we mentioned not that long ago, also on Victor Records. And this is the, the recording that um, W.C. Handy got the most excited about. He felt like this one really promoted what he was trying to do with the song and helped to popularize it. Of course, the most famous version, and the one that, that uh, we should always go back to, is the Bessie Smith version, uh, the one that she performed with um, Louis Armstrong. Uh, which is, to my mind, one of the great recordings of, uh, of, of that era. That's from 1925. Uh, and it's really the, of course, the black singers that would inspire the, the blues craze. I mean, that song, uh, St. Louis Blues, was also sung by Marion Harris in 1920 um, on Columbia Records. In fact, she even left Victor Records because they didn't want her to spoil her reputation by singing blues songs. So she wanted to record it, so she left uh, Victor and went to Columbia. But it's really, like I said, the black singers, the black female singers that will inspire the blues craze. The, the male singers, the country blues singers, the people self-accompanying on guitar, that comes later. The, the original blues craze, which starts in 1920, and we'll talk about that now, uh, starts because of these um, black female singers that are singing in a ragtime jazz sort of band uh, with, with that kind of accompaniment, right? So uh, piano and, and horn accompaniment, like a small ragtime or a small jazz band. And this, of course, goes back to August 10th of 1920, when the song Crazy Blues by Perry Bradford was recorded by Mamie Smith at OK Records. Right? Perry Bradford was a fairly successful song plugger, pianist, and songwriter in Harlem. 
and he wrote a show called Made of Harlem that goes back to 1918, and that featured Mamie Smith, and it had a hit song among black audiences called the Harlem Blues. Now, he's, his nickname was Mule Bradford because he was so stubborn. He insisted on, on getting his way, and so he would, he would often... Um, Pester, for lack of a better word, Fred Hager, who who was the uh, uh, main recording engineer um, and, and recording director at OK Records, a relatively small independent label. Um, he would pester him to record his music, and uh, Fred Hager was somewhat afraid of boycotts recording black music, but he did. He wound up recording it at, the, at their studios at 25 West 45th Street on Valentine's Day in 1920 was the first time he recorded some tunes by, by Perry Bradford. Now, in that session, they did not record a blues. They recorded that thing called Love, which was another hit from the show, and You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. And the backing group was the White Rega Orchestra. It was a, a white group. Um, and those songs, they, they sold pretty well without any promotion. And so Hager decided, okay, let's, let's record him again. And then on August 10th of 1920, they record Crazy Blues. And as you will hear, or when you listen to it, Crazy Blues is again this kind of ragtimey blues um, composition. There are parts of it that are straightforward 12-bar blues, but there are plenty of other parts of it that, that are not. That, so again, the distinctions between, or among, in my mind, uh, ragtime, blues, and jazz, we tend to make those nice, neat distinctions, and they're not. They're not at all clear. Keep in mind that Louis Armstrong and Jelly Roll Morton both referred to what they were doing as ragtime, long before they referred to it as jazz. They thought of it as an extension of ragtime. And the blues, I don't think of it as an extension of ragtime. It's the language that's already infused in ragtime. It's just being represented in a different way, right, in, in ragtime music. Now, they record this. Um, the crazy blues, and this time they are using an all-black band, right? Um, and it sells 75,000 copies in one month, mostly within the black community. Now, keep in mind, it would only cost, it would only uh, take 5,000 copies sold for them to recoup their cost. So they're making a great deal of profit off of these recordings. And what they realize, or at least what one person who will return to in, a, in an upcoming episode, Ralph Peer. Ralph Peer is one of the great businessmen of the early recording industry. And what he realizes, he was a recording assistant on this session, but, but it, it inspired him. He realized that there was a market out there that no one recognized as a market before because everyone assumed, first of all, everyone assumed that people bought phonographs as a kind of novelty thing. The recordings were there in order to bolster the sale of phonographs, not the other way around. But by the time you get to the 1920s, the late teens and then the early 20s, that relationship flips as it still is today, right? We don't for the most part, most of us wouldn't buy a CD player for the sake of buying a CD player. We buy the CD player to play a bunch of CDs, right? Or, you know, whatever device you might, you might use. And so that's the period where this is happening. It's no longer a novelty item. The idea is you have a phonograph so that you can buy a bunch of records and hear a wide variety of music. It's no longer, the fidelity is, is getting better, especially after 1925. We're not quite there yet. But the point here now is to amass recordings, not just to have this novelty item in your home. And Ralph Peer realizes that what that means is now that phonographs are becoming more affordable, black families do have them. 
the the logic of the of the record recording industry uh, was that that black people just didn't invest in that. First of all, their music wasn't represented, and uh, the machines had been relatively expensive. But in the late teens and early twenties, the price is dropping. And now more black homes have them. And so there was this untapped market that no one realized was there. And Ralph Peer did from this experience. And so what he does is he convinces OK Records to begin what is called the race music line, right? And this is going to be music by African Americans marketed to African Americans. And it does quite well. And they advertise in black uh, newspapers like the Chicago Defender and so on. Um, the Afro-American in, in, in Baltimore and all these, these black independent newspapers, they advertise in those papers. They advertise in ways that are, are meant to bring in uh, the black dollar. And this is important in a number of ways. It's a recognition of the purchasing power of, of the black community. And that's incredibly important in a capitalist uh, society, right? Because there's a reason that we call it purchasing power. There is an element of power there. It's not total power by any means, right? And it's not power that doesn't come with a great deal of manipulation and a great deal of coercion, but it is a form of power. And so this is a very important moment socially in the history of music. So the blues turned out to be integral to the explosion in market share of the recording industry in the in the 1920s it brought far greater attention to black recording artists than had previously been the case it created a distinctive sound that was widely emulated by composers and musicians and it provided many listeners with an early glimpse into what they regarded as a kind of black authenticity an authenticity that was alluded to by blackface performers but the utter artificiality of the minstrels and, and white velvillians drawing on black styles like Sophie Tucker and Al Jolson, that, that, that artificiality was readily apparent to many listeners, adored by some, lamented by others. Soon, though, with the rise of the blues queens, such as Gertrude Ma Rainey and especially Bessie Smith, black performers would be increasingly celebrated and emulated. Mainstream attention didn't bring social equity, of course, far from it. But figures like Bessie Smith began to be seen as wellsprings of creativity, musical expression, and cultural cachet. One only has to look at the photographs of Smith taken by Carl Van Vechten to get a sense of the esteem in which she was held and the almost talismanic power she possessed for music lovers, including many white listeners, because that's the thing here. The race records are marketed to black audiences, but more and more white audiences are starting to listen, especially among certain groups, artistic groups, like the, the circles that Carl Van Vechten ran in. In short, the blues quickly became not just one of many genres of music in the West, it became the lifeblood that coursed through most of the styles of music we think of as emanating from the heart of the United States. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sound Philosophy. 
I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you wish to know more about this podcast, please visit www.chadwitchjenkins.com and click on the page for Sound Philosophy. Also, feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. That is cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and hope to hear from you soon.